the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls so we can answer Bible questions, life questions, church questions, doctrine questions, whatever you've got rattling around in your mind and your heart. We'll do the best that we can to provide the answers for those questions. You can call us by dialing 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can call us toll-free if you're outside the local area by dialing 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Uh, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, uh, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app, the hands-free feature. Uh, just hit call now, and you will be connected directly to the studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. I want to finish the week with some good stuff. There's been a lot of heavy stuff this week, so maybe we can finish with some good questions. Uh, Because it's Friday tonight, we are studying Acts chapter 15, a really important, it's not too exciting a chapter, but it really is a chapter so important because it's a conflict that occurred that really determined the future of the church. God always has his people standing up for the truth. Uh, They, of course, prevailed. But, boy, this was the time uh, in the first century when it was the closest time ever to sort of the church of Jesus Christ losing its way. So Acts chapter 15 tonight uh, on Sunday here at Calvary Chapel, we get to start a brand new book. I'll be in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, so uh, I would appreciate your prayers. It is a fun gospel to teach. Let's go to some questions. The first one was sent in by Carlos from the northeast side. Uh, Hi, Pastor Ron. Hope you're good and well. I am, Carlos. Thank you. He says, I have a quick Bible question. In the book of Jude, 
1-9. Why was the devil disputing with the Archangel Michael about the body of Moses? And then he wishes me a good weekend. Carlos, thank you for the wishes. And you too have a good weekend. Um, the reason the devil was disputing with Michael, and, and this is something that's important to point out, Carlos. Uh, the devil and Michael the Archangel are equal counterparts. One for good, one for evil. Of course, the evil is the devil, and 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 uh, Michael, of course, Israel's prince. Uh, well, the reason that they would have disputed over the body is if the devil could have had it, he could have tripped uh, all of Israel up into worshiping Moses' body. It would have been set up like a monument, and everybody would have bowed down and worshipped it. God knows exactly the propensity of mankind. So that's what was going on. Um, Michael was sent. Jesus and the devil are not equal opposites. I say that again. Michael is, and, and, and Lucifer, Satan is. But had uh, God not sent Michael, and had Michael not prevailed, then the body of Moses would have been a stumbling block uh, for the people of Israel for for as long as the body was around. God was going to make sure that wasn't going to happen. So please note again, God didn't come. He sent Michael the archangel, to win the battle. Uh, one of the great um, studies throughout the Old Testament is is just look up the passages where Michael is involved. Because Michael is Israel's prince. That's his designated title in the heavenly realms. That means he is the one who ensured that when God had a work to do, that it got done through his people Israel. So Michael... Uh, is is um, important. Um, one other thing, Carlos, if you go to Daniel chapter 10, you can get a really good behind-the-scenes look at the spiritual warfare that's always going on behind the scenes. You know, we don't see it. We, we're aware that there's spiritual warfare in our lives. But in the heavens, the spiritual warfare is intense. And in this particular case, Michael had to be dispatched to save the day. So, Carlos, thank you very much. Good to hear from you again. 340-9585. Here is a question that came in from our email inbox from Pete. Uh, he says, I've heard commentators and pastors refute the idea that Jesus died only for the elect with John 3.16, saying it clearly says, for God so loved the world, but couldn't this refer to the world that he has elected? And what about Isaiah 53.12, where it says he bore the sins of many, many, not all. Doesn't this point out that Jesus did not, and he has not capitalized, in fact, die for all, nor let his sacrifice failed to save all those who reject him, but rather that his sacrifice was for the selected many whom he chose as elected. After all, in John 17, 9, the world doesn't mean all men without exception. He's referring only to those not saved. So can we not assume that the world may not refer to all men without exception, but rather only to the elect in John 3.16? Pete, a couple of things. You have to be really, really careful. I, I, I can almost guess who you're listening to on the radio or who you're reading. But you have to be really, really careful because there's no way that you can come up with the idea that Jesus' death was only for a chosen few by reading the text. That doctrine that is in error has to be imposed upon the scripture. We have to change words and change meanings. The world means the world, for God so loved the world. God is love, and that is a reference to all. There is no possible 
hermeneutic gymnastic that you can do to make that read the elect. And I know one of the doctrines of Calvinism, which you've been trapped into evidently, Pete, is that God's grace is irresistible. But we also know that's not true. We resist God's grace all the time. We resist him. We quench his spirit. Why? We do it with disobedience. So the truth of the matter is, is that when it says God loved the world, that's exactly what it meant. And there's, again, no possible hermeneutic that allows you to to apply this only to the elect. When you say, what about in Isaiah 53, 12, where it says he bore the sins of many? Well, he did. He bore my sins. And Pete, if you're saved, he bore your sins. But if somebody dies apart from Christ, he didn't bear their sins. That's why Jesus said many are called and few are chosen. It's why Jesus said that the road to destruction is wide and broad and well-traveled, but the road to salvation is narrow and few find it. It's not because we're not able to, 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 to know where that road is. It's because we don't want to know, because we don't want to be saved. So when it says he bore the sins of many, again, Pete, he bore my sins and he bore your sins. And the reason he didn't bear all the people's sins is because the only way we can be saved is by faith in Jesus Christ. If we don't exercise that faith, then we're going to stand before God and give account for our own sins. Now, here's where your sort of illogical logic really, really gets you in trouble, Pete. In John chapter 17, verse 9, All you have to do is read the text. Look at the context. Read the words for what they mean. I'm going to go back a verse. Now these prayers, John chapter 17, this is often called Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's a private conversation that you and I, Pete, get to sort of eavesdrop in on. He's praying to his Father just before he goes to the cross. And he's thanking his father for those that he have he's been given by God the Father and those that have stayed with him through the end. And in verse eight he says, For I gave them the words that you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. And then in verse nine he says, I pray for them. So all he's saying here, Pete, is at this point, this is where he's praying for his disciples. He's been with these men for three uh, and a half or so years. And now he's leaving them. He looks into their crushed hearts and he knows they're terrified. And, And he prays for them. He's not praying for the world at large. He's praying for them. And that's what he says in the next part of the sentence in verse 9. I'm not praying for the world but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Now, in verse 9, praying for the world means exactly that. Jesus just says, I've stopped praying for all the people in the world. Now, later he's going to pray for you and for me, Pete. But for you to say, can we not assume that the world may not refer to all men without exception? He said in John 17, 9, the world doesn't mean all men without exception. Well, he is saying, I am not praying for everybody right now. I'm praying specifically for the disciples, those who will become apostles. So all he's doing is making a prayer very specific. But the world means the world. And Pete, you have to be really, really careful. 
the men who will be telling you that the world doesn't mean the world, but it only means the elect. They have no leg to stand on hermeneutically. They have to change definitions and twist texts. And here's why they do it, Pete, and I'm taking a, a little bit of time with this because it's so important for you. I don't know who you are, how long you've been walking with the Lord. I don't know how old you are. But to come up with those sort of twists on Scripture, you've got to decide that your systematic theology is Reformed or Calvinist, and then you're going to twist everything to fit your systematic theology. And that is a way that's for sure going to destroy the joy that you have in your walk with the Lord. Instead of imposing your systematic theology on the text and doing the twisting, what I hope you'll be honest enough to do, Pete, is to read the scriptures and form your systematic theology from what it says. Get your systematic theology from what the word says, what it means, instead of laying that Calvinistic perspective over and above that filter and imposing them on the scriptures. Why is this important? Because it changes the nature of who God is. Not only does it change the nature of who God is, it changes whether or not he's loving and kind, whether or not he's telling us the truth. He bore the sins of all who accept him by faith. You and me, Pete, were saved because Jesus died for our sins. His death was efficacious for all, but it was only effective for those who believe by faith. So there is no conceivable way that for God so loved the world can mean that God so loved only a chosen few. So, Pete, I hope that gives you enough to ask some questions. 340-9585 on... Oh, I, I, I yeah, I want to make a... a an, I, had a, I made an error on Wednesday. Uh, Paula was here yesterday and I forgot. Thank you. My producer's just reminding me. I asked him to do it. Uh, on Wednesday, I, I can't remember who sent the question off the top of my head. But on Wednesday, I got a question about why people in the Old Testament saw God didn't die. And I referenced John chapter 12, verse 23. I meant to, to, to point out John chapter 12, verse 41. That's where Jesus, um, or, or John writes that when Isaiah saw the vision of God's throne, we know that in Isaiah chapter 6. Um, it, it, it's, he said that he saw Jesus. That's why he didn't die. So I apologize for the error, and thank you, producer, for helping remind me, because I, I wanted to set those things straight. I hate it when I make mistakes. I was going off the top of my head, and I thought it was John twelve twenty three, but it's not. Okay, here's a question from, from Nathaniel. Pastor Ron, can you explain sign gifts, please? What's the difference between them and other miracles? And why aren't miracles occurring in church services regularly? Nathaniel, sign gifts, and this is important because to understand the miracles that we read about, Jesus, when he did miracles, he did miracles that 
it was prophesied that the Christ, the Messiah, when he came, would do. Remember when John the Baptist, in his moment of doubt, just before he was beheaded by Herod, remember he said, well, we'll go ask him, are you the one or should we wait for another? You know, it's not the way John expected things to turn out. He's going to die in prison. The kingdom of God doesn't appear to be at hand at that moment. And Jesus sent his disciples back. You tell John that the blind see and the lame can walk. And lepers are cleansed. And that would have been all John needed to hear. And those sign gifts that Jesus did were sign, it's like a neon sign arrows pointing to Jesus. I'm the one that you're expecting. Still, they left him when the apostles did them. It was the same thing. It was a, a sign that validated their authority to proclaim the message. It validated the truth of their message about Jesus. So sign gifts have a purpose, and those that purpose is always to point to Jesus. The, 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 the purpose of miracles isn't just to make people's lives better or to make them happy or to make Jesus popular. It would point to the message that he was communicating with authority, and that's why they were all so accountable, especially those who opposed Jesus. They saw with their own eyes the things that he did, and they simply dismissed them because they didn't like what he said. They didn't like his message. So that's a sign gift. The, the other miracles that you talk about are just miracles of healing that happen. Um, the, the miracle, by definition, Nathaniel, is, is rare. I think sometimes in our church culture, especially in prosperity and what's called wrongly called faith churches, um, you know, we try to make miracles normative, and they're not. A miracle is God imposing himself on the world that we live in. He's making something that seems impossible. He's making it possible. Somebody gets healed without explanation. Somebody's saved from a tragedy. And there seems to be no reason why other than, well, it just happened. Somebody's cancer is cured. There's a whole bunch of things that could qualify as miracles. Unfortunately, Nathaniel, we wouldn't know in our church culture what they are. We've taken goosebumps and proclaimed miracles are happening. We actually have churches, Nathaniel, where they claim to have gold dust being dropped from the heavens or they claim that God is filling people's teeth replacing the fillings with real gold fillings or people running around screaming and out of control and shaking those are supposed to be miracles people getting touched on the forehead and falling on the floor those aren't miracles that's a silly show with no value a miracle is when there's no other explanation. God intervened. Why don't we see miracles occurring in church services regularly? Because they're not supposed to. Jesus said a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after miracles. But I think there's a bigger reason, Nathaniel, and I hope this one really, really hits your heart. When you go to church Sunday, Look around and observe the lives that people are living. Look at the program. 
that your church is advancing? Are they putting on a show or are they proclaiming Jesus? Is there teaching about a commitment to personal holiness? Is the Holy Spirit given the freedom to convict your heart of sin? In fact, is your pastor even talking about sin and the need to repent? See, Nathaniel, we've taken church. I'm going to actually be talking about this a little bit tomorrow at our pastor's discipleship class here at Calvary Chapel. But we've taken church and made it entertainment. We've sort of locked the door and kept Jesus out because he wants us to focus on holiness and sin and repentance getting right with God and walking with God. We've, we've turned Jesus into sort of a heavenly concierge whose sole purpose in life is to make us happy and make our lives go well with no problems. Please note throughout the book of Acts the danger, the constant danger that all the people doing miracles were in. We know the ancient world the first century church was a dangerous brutal place and here in the west especially we've decided that Jesus just wants me to be happy carefree that's why there's no miracles or why miracles aren't happening at all in most churches that's why we have to fake them Truth is, Nathaniel, the message about repentance from sin and being right with God and staying right with God, it's not a popular message. And since we seem to be more focused on the numbers of people in our churches, I'll give you one other explanation, and I won't belabor this. I've had some questions about it this week. But we see the men in the pulpit living duplicitous lives. They got a great stage persona, but really not doing much in terms of walking in personal purity or holiness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I think that's probably the biggest explanation of all, Nathaniel. Thank you very, very much. Here is an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, is God angry with me when I sin? Anonymous, no, he's not angry. And let me add that he's not surprised. He's not surprised in the least. Now, he's heartbroken when we sin, especially when we choose willful sin. Now, when we just fall into sin and we say, oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. Maybe you just lashed out in anger at somebody and were unkind. Oh, I don't want to do that. Lord, I'm so sorry. No, he, he's thrilled that you come to him for, for, for repentance. But when we sin willfully, we break his heart. He's not a man like you're a man or I'm a man or a woman, if that's the case, Anonymous. He just wants you to say you're sorry and get right with him. Because he wants fellowship with you. And that's what sin destroys. Sin destroys fellowship. So it breaks his heart because we're settling for less than his best. But he's never angry. 
He's never shocked. You know, too many Christians, when we sin, it's like, oh, man, I thought I was better than that. God, God would tell you if you'd listen. No, you're not. He would add that you're going to sin every time you get any distance between me and you. So, no, he's not angry. He's not looking to scold you. He's not looking to rebuke you. All he wants is for you to say, I'm sorry, I don't want to sin anymore. And too many of us, we have a, a, an image of an angry God when in fact he just isn't. Does he hate sin? Yes, he hates sin. Does he keep a record and act like a petulant child when we mess up? No, he doesn't. It's his kindness, the Bible says, leads to repentance, not his anger. So no, God is not angry with you, and you need to learn more about who he is. Can I ask you to do one thing, Anonymous? I don't know whether you're a male or a female. But I'm going to ask you uh, this weekend. It won't take you very long at all. Go to the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, depending on uh, which translation you're using, and read the parts that are entitled Lover, that, that have the headline Lover. Because that's Jesus talking to you. Imagine that he's looking deep into your eyes and he's telling you things like, how beautiful you are, my darling. There's no flaw in you. You're perfect for me. Imagine that kind of love coming from him to you. And when you can do that, when you really let the Holy Spirit convince you how much God loves you, then you needn't ever again worry about God being angry. Will he discipline you when you sin and continue in sin? Of course he will. But he does that because he loves you. But he's never angry. Imagine him with the tear running down his cheek saying, come back to me. Hope that helps Anonymous. We've got 30 minutes left in the week. 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back on the other side of the break. See you in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to our final half hour of the week 340-9585 for your live calls and questions uh carlos from the northeast side i told you it was good to hear from you evidently paula thought so too and she texted my producer and and wanted me to ask how your wife is doing. Uh, she wants you to know that she's praying for her, and uh, um, where we hope that all is well. Thanks for calling or sending in a question again. Here's a question from our mobile app from Scott. Pastor Ryan, would you please comment on a new story about a numerologist claiming that the rapture is coming this month on the 23rd of the month? Scott, I'll comment a couple of things because I'm going to do this tongue-in-cheek because this is a silly notion. But I hope he's I hope he's right. But he can't be right because Jesus said, I'm going to come at a time when you think not. When you're not expecting me, I'm going to come suddenly in, in the twinkling of an eye. Um, 
Scott, and for everybody else in the audience, uh, I had not heard about this one uh, up to this question being asked, but nobody knows, nobody can predict when the rapture of the church is going to come. This is just going to be another um, silly thing that's going to pass, and uh, we're going to look foolish again, those of us who believed it. Uh, This is a guy who's a numerologist. He is also evidently into uh, astrology. Uh, He says, on April 23rd, the sun and the moon will be in Virgo, as will Jupiter, which represents the Messiah. And he takes the passage in Revelation chapter 12 uh, about the woman with the the clothes with the sun and the moon and the stars and says, see, that's that's his time. Um, That betrays a complete lack of, of any skill at all in exegeting the book of Revelation, and especially Revelation chapter 12. That's in the Great Tribulation. In fact, that's going to be at the midway point of the Great Tribulation that, that, that Revelation chapter 12 occurs. And the truth of the matter is, that's just bad exegesis. So please, please, please don't spend any time reading or hoping or anything else. You know what we need to do? I, I was at a, I, I told you, uh, uh, we were at a pastor's conference this past weekend. We we broadcast actually from Plano uh, last Thursday and Friday. And one of my dear friends there, Pastor Rick Coburn from Calvary Chapel in Dallas, um, who was the host of the conference, he said something that I wish more of us would say. Now, I'm crazy, crazy wanting Jesus to come. I want the rapture to be here yesterday. I mean, that's that's how eager I am to see Jesus. But here's what he said. He said, what if he doesn't come? And his point was, we can expect and eagerly await the, 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 the return of the Lord for his church. But for now, 2,000 years, or nearly 2,000 years, he hasn't come. What if it's another thousand years or two thousand years? Now, we're all going to go be with Jesus at some point. But what we need to do is we need to occupy. We need to plan on him not coming. And then when he comes, it's, it'll be a great surprise. So I, I think that's what Jesus meant when he said, occupy until I return. Look for the Lord's to return every day. It'll change the way you live, the decisions that you make. But these, and I, I, I say this as kindly as I can, these these nuts who have so besmirched not only the idea of a rapture, but, but embarrassed the church time and time again. And we Christians that get caught up in this, Scott, we're without excuse because Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. No one knows. Why isn't that okay with us? So no, Jesus will not be coming on the 23rd now for sure. Maybe he'll come tonight. But I'm going to plan on him not coming at all. So I hope that makes sense to you. Scott, don't be led astray. Here's a question from our mobile app from Ted. You just answered a question about God's response to our sin 
and how he's not angry at us when we sin or or does he scold us? What about in the Old Testament when God would constantly burn with anger or scold sinners such as the Israelites or Job's friends? You know, in the Old Testament, we're, 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 we're using a language that, that can communicate God's heart towards sin. Now, a couple of things I hope, Ted, that are obvious to you. The first is that uh, Israel had no understanding of grace. They were under law. And the result of being under law was that they were always guilty. And so their image of God was angry. Now, remember how God was patient in the Old Testament, even in the middle of all of these, these examples that you cite. God said that he's slow to anger and abounding in love. And yet he was rewarded for his patience with Israel continuing to rebel against him. Instead of being grateful that God was slow to anger and patient and abounding in love, they took advantage of it. Yes, that made God angry, not at the people, angry at the sin. Job's friends. Of course God was angry. Why? Because they hurt Job. And Job was God's friend. He was taking it for his friend. But that he burned with anger, that gives us an idea of how God feels even now, Ted, when gossip rules and reigns in the church. All you have to do is sort of search the internet and look at so-called Christian blogs, and you see all of this ugliness out there. And that makes God angry. But he still loves the people. We who are believers are the object of his love. It doesn't say God's anger leads us to repentance. Romans says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So you have to understand the context that the Old Testament was written in, what its intent is, the law, the covenant that they were under, and then understand the difference, the glorious difference in the new covenant that we who are born-again believers have. If Jesus didn't get angry at Peter, when Peter denied him three times, if Jesus didn't get angry at his disciples, when they constantly were arguing about who would be the greatest in God's kingdom, who'd take over when Jesus left, no, God doesn't get angry with this. And the picture, Ted, that you might have of God it's a very inaccurate, incomplete picture. Jesus thinks about you all day, every day. You are, as a Christian, Ted, washed in his blood, which means that from heaven's perspective, that you're perfect. How could he get angry at someone he loves? You know, Ted, and this isn't in response to your question, but it's just a general application. You know, we we who are humans, we get angry at our wives. I'm speaking from a male perspective. We raise our voice and we get in an argument. We say terrible things. Our kids hear it. and It, it ought to be so embarrassing. Well, how could we do that if we truly love our wives? Can you find anger anywhere in the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5? 
The answer is no. Well, how much more a perfect, loving God who's wiped away all your sins, past, present, and future, how could he possibly be angry? Heartbroken, for sure. I don't know how Jesus does it. I, I, you know, I mean, he's God. He's got broad shoulders, but I don't know how he deals with his constant heartbreak. But he does. And he doesn't deal with it angrily. We humans, we're the ones that get angry, not him. He loves you. 340-9585. Here's a question from our mobile app from Rob. What is the best way to tell a Catholic that the Eucharist elements do not miraculously turn into the body and blood of Christ? And then in parentheses, he's got substantiation. Uh, it's actually transubstantiation, uh, Rob. Um, I, I, I don't think you can, I don't think there's a best way. I think what you do is ask them to read their Bible without the filter of church tradition Ask them to go into the upper room in the gospel accounts and then very objectively look at the circumstances and what Jesus was saying and under what circumstances he was saying it. When Jesus broke the bread, he said, take and eat, this is my body broken for you. Now, the Catholic Church has been taught, not just Catholics, but Lutherans and Anglicans and other liturgical type churches They've been taught that it actually becomes Jesus in the elements. It, could that possibly be what he meant when he was actually still in his physical body? When his body would later be broken, was he giving them previews of coming attractions? We might say it like this, this is my body, it's going to be broken for you. See, his disciples understood that. And while it's not a heretical view in the sense that people who believe this, uh, you know, this isn't essential of our faith, it is a view that flies in the face of the context of the passage. Whenever you do this, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, remembering my death, remembering he's going to come again. That's a memorial service. And if your Catholic friends want to know what's true, then the Holy Spirit will open up the truth to them. But if they're just going to buy the doctrine of the church because that's what's been crammed down their throats since they were infants, then there's really not much you can do. Rob, I'll tell you what you can do if your friends, your Catholic friends... Live with a joy in the Lord that they can't possibly understand. Live with a joy that comes from the freedom that you have of not trying to impress God, not needing to do good works, but wanting to do them instead. I'm actually going to talk a little bit about that tonight in Acts chapter 15. You know, when we do something because we love God, it's not work at all. But we do something to please God we do something to make him happy with us. That's a labor. That's just hard work. And if you have the joy that your Catholic friends can't understand, 
then eventually with your prayers for them, your consistency in your walk, God will open their heart. Just keep pray for, praying for them. 340-9585, here's a question from Devin. I like this question, Devin. It says, Pastor Ron, can you explain what the difference between having a pastoral gift and teaching gift uh, of the Holy Spirit is? I can I can explain that. Uh, you know, Devin, I, 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 I feel very, very strongly that everybody called to be a pastor has been given the gift of teaching by the Holy Spirit. I, I honestly don't think it's possible to shepherd the souls of the people God loves if you don't have the gift to teach them who he is and what he's done. So I think the pastoral gift and the gift of teaching must go together. Now, you can have the gift of teaching without having a pastoral gift. To have the pastoral gift, you've got to love people. You, you've got to love their hearts and want what's best for them. You've got to love them enough to challenge them and, and, and sometimes to say things to them that they're not going to accept. Why would a pastor do that? Because that's what our job is. We're to tend the flock of God. There are people who have gifts of teaching, wonderful gifts of teaching. But they teach and they go home. They're not concerned about what you do with that, that gift. So you can teach without having a pastoral gift, but you cannot be a pastor without having a teaching gift. There's nothing more important, Devin, that uh, I do here at our church for 23 years than teaching the Word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, week after week. Uh, so I hope that makes sense to you. That's the difference. Um, if you're going to be a pastor, Devin, you've got to keep your heart wide open and you've got to let people in. And to do that, you're running the risk of being deceived. You're going to run the risk of being betrayed, hurt, your heart stomped on. But when you understand those are Jesus' flock and he loves them and you got to love them, he, he's, he's given you the responsibility to care for them. You can't withhold anything from them. You know, Devin, one of the... Uh, this is probably something else I'll talk about in brief tomorrow at our pastor's discipleship class. In our church culture, the way we've set up churches, especially with mega churches, the the man that's called the lead pastor, the senior pastor, whatever other title they give him, is often only a stage presence. And he's got a bunch of pastors underneath him who will take care of the flock, or at least hopefully they will. But he really doesn't get involved. He's the teacher, the speaker. But he's not really involved in their lives. And being a pastor, you, you dedicate babies and they grow up and you marry them. Being a pastor means you nurture and care for people, but you also discipline them if discipline's appropriate. It means you tell them the truth. You don't take the easy way out just to get out of a conversation. It means 
when you see somebody who's difficult coming at you, you don't turn around and run the other way. you got to love people. I once had a young man who he thought he was called to be a pastor in Bible college. Half my age, he said, Ron, to be a pastor, do you have to like people? And I said, you got to like them, you got to love them. And he never became a pastor. So I hope that makes some sense. It wasn't too confusing. Here is a question from Adam. Uh, it makes a statement, God is all-powerful, and the Holy Spirit is God. So how is it even possible that we could inhibit God's work in us? Adam, I think that's a good question. Now, all we know is that we can quench the Spirit. Um, Paul tells us not to do it, so obviously we can do it. And one of the ways I explain this to our church here, Adam, is that the only thing powerful enough on this earth to inhibit the work God wants to do in us and through us is us. And the reason is because we have that element of choice. Of our own free will, we have to choose to serve God every day. If we don't make that choice, then we are inhibiting the work God wants to do. It's not that he doesn't want to do the work. It's just that we don't let him do it because our heart's not where it's supposed to be. Our heart's not obedient. Our heart's not selfless. You're right. God is all-powerful. The Holy Spirit is God. But over and over and over, we see people resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. We see that in the pages of Scripture. But all you have to do is look in, look around in your church. Maybe even if you're honest enough, look around in your own life. I think sometimes, Adam, we get the idea that if God wants us to do something, He'll make us do it. And because He doesn't make us do anything, then we just assume, well, maybe that wasn't God's will for me. No, it, it's not true at all. It's just sometimes when he wants you to do something, Ephesians 2, chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 10, says that we are God's workmanship, created to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. So he's got a plan for all of us, Adam. But what we have to do is walk in that plan, or we forfeit the right to be used. We forfeit the privilege of being used. And the only way we can do it is to say, Jesus, I'm going to be with you. It's why I get on this high horse. We've got to be with Jesus. Just be with Jesus every day. You can't miss out on God's plan for your life if you do that. But sadly, we choose our own steps, our own plans, and we're forfeiting. You know what happens when we choose not to be where God wants us to be, doing what he wants us to do? What happens, Adam, is that he gets somebody else to do it. God's will goes on. God's work goes on. But we have to choose whether or not it's going to go on with us, using us, and through us. Because if we say no, somebody else is going to say yes. I used to tease our church here at Calvary Chapel, you know, um, if you've been listening to this program any length of time, that I'm white and Paul is black. And I used to just think it was funny, in a not in a funny ha-ha way, but just a funny, sad kind of way, that God chose a, 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 a white guy and a black woman to come to a city that's 60% Hispanic and loaded with all kinds of other people. And I think sometimes, well, God, you gave me this privilege because somebody else said no. 
That's one of the things that drives me, Adam. I don't want to miss out on anything God wants for me. So, yes, the Holy Spirit could force you to do anything, but that would eliminate your ability to choose. And God never forces himself on anyone. Sometimes I wish he would, but he doesn't and he won't. So I hope that makes sense. Here is a question that Rose called into the studio. Um, how come newer versions of the Bible leave out Romans 8.1 that, that don't walk after the flesh but after the spirit? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus that, won't, that don't walk after the flesh but after the spirit. Rose, they're not leaving it out. In fact, you'll see it at the bottom of your page in the newer versions. Uh, the reason it's not there is because it's not included in the manuscripts that they're translating. There's two sets of primary manuscripts that we get our versions of the Bible from. Uh, King James, the New King James, the authorized version, um, um, are translated from what, what's called the majority text or Texas or Septus. And those words were put in there by the translators because they were there. Um, there's, there's certainly no damage to them being there or not being there. Um, but but the the Alexandrian manuscripts, which are older and were discovered later, simply don't have that to be translated. So they're not trying to leave out anything at all. I think, in fact, it's a, an imposition uh, on the text that, that that that's why it belongs there, uh, because that's what we see. If you're if you're walking with Jesus, you're not condemned. Hope that makes sense, Rose. Thank you. Let's go to Scott from Shirts. Scott, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. Hi, Scott. Um, I got a, a my question um, is kind of twofold here. Um, th- there was a person in a Bible study I was in, and they're very, um, I don't know, just vo- very boisterous and, and kind of assertive in their ideas, what have you. And they presented something that I'd never heard before, so I really didn't um discuss it too much with them but they were talking about I, I if i pronounce it right raphaim or raphaim or something like that uh, that they were offsprings of the nephilim and i told them well i'd never heard that so i went home and did a little research and nearest i could tell people that come up with that idea come come from the the uh the um non-scripture books um i guess the apocrypha or whatever yeah. they, they call that um so I think I pretty much answered that question, but here's 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 the other thing about that I wanted to ask you is when you are dealing with somebody that um, is very confrontational with their idea or something like that, um, I, I just kind of like to know how you kind of deal with that. <laughs> One thing is they're very quick to get argumentative, yeah. but at the same point, I like to discuss with them because even though their ideas sometimes are off and they're not correct, it gets me to go dig deeper so I have a better understanding of what mm-hmm. they're talking about. Um, yeah, Scott, I've got, I've got, I've got less. That. I'm sure you run into that. Oh, okay. Yeah, Scott, I've run into it a lot. Let me, I've got less than one minute, so let okay. me do it quickly. Okay. And then if I don't get, do it right. adequately, I'll, I'll get to it on Monday. Um, okay. Uh, Bible you, studies. Okay. Thank you. Bible studies need Bible teachers. Uh, they're not to be open discussion groups. Now, there's nothing wrong with talking about the Bible, but, there needs to be in every Bible study a teacher. And that teacher needs to control the Bible study because he's protecting other people. And boisterous people are not humble. 
Um, somebody who's not humble has no business teaching the word. The Bible says, seek not uh, many of you to be teachers because you stand the stricter judgment. Uh, so the way I deal with them is to say, you know what, you're not going to be permitted to do that here. And uh, we've run a lot of people off that way, unfortunately. Uh, you know, Scott, I want to get to that a little bit in more detail next week. Thanks for tuning in this week. It's been a great week on the program. We'll see you on Monday on AM 630, The Word. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Builders.com, AlamoPoolBuilders.com. Isabel Bazan graduated from Our Lady of the Lake University in 1942 and went to work for the city at the main library, where she soon became the head librarian. She faithfully served multiple generations until she passed in 1977. And in her honor, the Isabel G. Bazan Library opened its doors that same year. If you're looking for a church to call home, start your search with the church directory at am630theword.com. There you'll find hundreds of churches near you. Churches like Agape Christian Church, Trinity Baptist, River City Community Church, Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, Freedom Fellowship, Riverview Calvary Chapel, His Life Fellowship, Alamo City Bible Church, and Calvary Chapel Solid Rock. Or make sure your home church is listed so others can find you. It's the church directory at am630theword.com. This is John MacArthur with another edition of Portraits of Grace. Do you realize that the same divine power that created, sustains, and controls the universe guards your salvation? That's right. You might not always sense God's power at work on your behalf, but it's there nonetheless. 1 Peter 1.5 says that you're protected by the power of God through faith in Christ. In that verse, protected means to keep or guard and reflects Peter's confidence that salvation is secure along with your faith. Jesus said that no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand, not even Satan himself. And Paul confidently added that nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing. Be assured, you're secure in Christ. This is John MacArthur looking forward to bringing you more Portraits of Grace. What happened? You used to go hours without visiting the bathroom. Now it seems like you're constantly getting up to go, and you're even getting up at night to go. This is not okay. Listen, the makers of Super Beta Prostate, the number one prostate formula, are introducing a new wonder pill, Super Beta Prostate P3 Advanced, with three key ingredients that are great for your prostate. It's like taking three prostate supplements in one. To celebrate, we're sending free bottles to men who want to cut down on bathroom trips. Yes, your first 30-day supply is free. Pay ship. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost 
and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.